Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Bingeworthy, a podcast dedicated to telling you, the audience, which of these many dozens of streaming shows that are being thrown at you each week and month are worth your time and attention. Hosted by myself, Mike D'Angelo, and today I get to talk to you about my favorite new vampire show of the many that are coming out this fall, Showtime's Let the Right One In, which was originally a novel, and then it was a foreign language film, and then it was an English language remake, which begs the question, why make the same story again but longer? Well, they wisely did not. Uh, the show follows a father, played by Demian Bashir, and his vampire daughter, played by Madison Taylor Baez, as they return to New York on their quest to find a cure or at least some answers as to what's happening to the young vampire girl. There's also a new storyline added in, following a woman played by Grace Gummer. Uh, be, she's basically being called home to discover that her brother that she thought was lost years ago is actually alive and all is vampiric horror and is being locked away by her father. Uh, like I said, I think it's super interesting and it expands upon the themes of the film with new characters and some that are familiar, some that are very different. So there's a bit of uh, old and new with it, but um, probably more new to kind of keep people uh, interested and uh, following along. I'm really into it so far. I've seen the first six and it's really great. So joining me to discuss the show is writer-showrunner Andrew Hinderaker, who you might know from his work on Penny Dreadful or Netflix's Away. During our chat, we talk about why he needed to tell this story, working with his amazing cast, his favorite vampiric content, and so much more. But before we get to our chat with Andrew, I've got to tell you that Bingeworthy is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes the Playlist Podcast, the Discourse, both of which I'm a part of, also Be Real, Deep Focus, The Fourth Wall, The Rogue Ones, and more. We can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your favorite shows. Follow, like, subscribe, drop us a rating on any of those as we really, really appreciate it. Okay, let's sink our teeth into my interview with Let the Right One In showrunner Andrew Hinderaker. I have seen the first five and episode seven because six isn't quite done yet, but I think it's excellent. I think this is a really good series. So congratulations. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to watch. Yeah, I can't wait to see the rest, including, you know, the middle episode that I missed there. I'm glad that seven didn't give too much away, but they, they weren't able to send it six. We did that a little bit intentionally in that um, seven is kind of its own standalone episode yeah. that I'm really, is really important to me. So it's sort of like, let's do one through five. And I said, no, put in seven as well. Um, so. <laughs> nice. Well, I'm definitely stoked to see the rest of it. Let's start out by talking about, you know, the beginning of this for you. How did this come to you? Was it floating around the TV verse or was it something that you pursued or was brought to you? How did it start? How it came to me yeah. was I was in um, really just one of those general meetings that television writers often have with uh, the good folks at Tomorrow Studios. And they were mentioning a couple of projects and properties 
that they had, and then offhandedly mentioned like, let the right one in, not as something that they were presenting to me. In fact, it was something that they had attempted. It didn't quite work for them. They were shelving. And I just, the moment I heard those words, I stopped them and said, I'm so sorry. Uh, I know that we're talking about other things today. I know that we're five minutes into this meeting. I'm not going to hear another thing that you say. <laughs> So what I would love to do is go home right now, um, rewatch the film, see if it still speaks to me the way that it spoke to me um, when I when I saw it, when I read the novel. And if that is true, I'd, I'd I'd love to tell you about why. And if that interests you, wonderful. And if it doesn't, don't worry about it. And they said, well, we're not really, I said, totally hear you. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so thank you so much for, <laughs> just because I knew that, I mean, for me, there has to be something really deeply resonant and deeply personal. And I adore the film and I adore the novel and it speaks to me as an artist. It inspires me as an artist and uh, revisiting the film. It inspired me in even deeper and more personal ways. Uh, I, I felt like the way that it was hitting on loneliness and connection and darkness and light. Um, and then in particular, in sort of new ways, the way that it was working as, as a kind of parable of addiction for me as a, as a creature that was addicted to blood and, and whose addiction was potentially destroying their lives and everyone who crossed their path. Um, and to be able to tell that story while also telling a story that was terrifying and full of love is like, yeah, that is what I would love to capture. That's the kind of work that I was privileged to do in Penny Dreadful and in the theater. And, and I came to them with that, that connection and that, that being what I really wanted to lean into and some initial ideas of what that might mean for the story and the adaptation. And I think that, you know, some version of, well, if you, that's interesting. If you want to keep going, great. <laughs> and that was the only, the only crack in the door that I needed. And from there, um, they've been extraordinary partners and Showtime has been um, an extraordinary partner. But that's the, that's the kind of fully candid version of how the project began. Even with all that said, was there ever a point where you're like, maybe I just shouldn't try this. It's too perfect of a little story. It's great as it is. Absolutely. Do I touch this? Was there an element of that? I'm definitely, I'm definitely proud and, and I'm not without ego, but I like to think that I'm not full of hubris. And so when you have a film that is like that exquisite and a novel that's that perfect, you do, I think you have to ask the question, why are we doing this? And, and, and the completely candid, honest version is it speaks to me very deeply and it inspires, it's inspiring in me a story that is a thousand percent a love letter to the film and novel, but it's something different altogether. And that I believe has a place in the world and has a really potent place in the world and can speak to a whole lot of people, including people, I mentioned addiction earlier, including people who have loved ones who are struggling with addiction, who have children who are struggling with addiction, that there was an opportunity to tell a story that frankly is a different story than the film and the novel that I really feel passionately about and, and feel passionately has a place in the 2022 landscape of television and film. And then I, I suppose the second question is why then call it let the right one in. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, my answer to that, in addition to all of the ways in which our series aspires to honor the source material is at the risk of sounding glib, the series would not exist without let the right one in. It has 
inspired. You would have gotten sued as well as what you're saying. <laughs> that's that's well said, but there are so many <laughs> story points that are just that really sort of inspired by the material. You know, I think I, I promised you my last tangent, Mike, but I remember, do you remember the series Fargo when it first came out? Of course. Um, and I remember thinking like, why the hell are they doing Fargo as a television series? Same, exact same. <laughs> <laughs> and then I remember hearing it was a different story and a different set of characters at a different time period. And I'm like, well, why are they hell, the hell are they calling it Fargo, right? And then I watched the pilot and I thought, not only is this magnificent, but it absolutely is Fargo. Like it is absolutely, it's, it's the, the DNA of that film is embedded into the series. And that is certainly the aspiration with our series. And I know it's sort of locked in ambitious to thrust the, um, the series into that company, but that is, that certainly represents our, our ambitions and goals. And I think, I believe honestly that the original film and the original novel and my love for both of them is really embedded into the DNA of the series. So you watched the original film. Did you touch it all on Let Me In just out of curiosity? Or were you just like, no, we're going to, we're, we're touching these. That's, that's fine as it is. I, you know, I, just like with the original Swedish film, I returned to it. I'd seen, I'd seen Let Me In. Um, I had the privilege of working with Matt Reeves on the television show Away. I love Matt's work. I love what he did. I mean, you know, he really he really stuck his finger in there and, and said like, I'm going to really do that same story and, and do it again. And I think similarly, Matt adores that film and it speaks to him. And I think a lot of what he did was exquisite. I think our series is more heavily influenced by the Swedish film, uh, but absolutely. I mean, if, if you're not visiting the work of Matt Reeves, then you're missing out. <laughs> absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, I watched both of them, you know, uh, this week before I re before I watched your series. So it's just like mm. everything's fresh in the mind. I, I was watching it all. Um, yeah, great vampire content. But how did you delineate what you were interested in carrying over versus what you were less interested in carrying over? Was it just as easy as this connects to me and I'm going to ride just ride with that? I think so. I think that I always pause a little bit when I'm just trying to answer it as honestly as possible. And the, the very, the, the very honest answer is one of the images from the original film that struck me so profoundly and so deeply is there's a moment when Ellie, the child creature vampire attacks a bystander who's trying to help Ellie. Mm-hmm. They're underneath the overpass of a bridge. Ellie latches on bites, kills the person, drinks the blood. And then after drinking the blood, snaps the victim's head because in the world of let the right one in it's often better to be dead than to be a vampire and then after it happens ali looks down at the victim the life that's been taken and doubles over and starts crying and that moment for me was when i talk about it being something of a parable of addiction that moment that image in particular was really resonant. And, and so I point to it because it was more for me about capturing the emotion and the emotional truth of what was present in that moment of what is present when Ali and Oscar meet uh, in the original film, than it was necessarily capturing specific story points or specific characters or specific relationships. Uh, there are so many images that I love and moments I love that that love I think filters in. So there's a moment where Morse code is tapped through a trunk in the film and we do our own version of that, which again was not 
oh, I'm going to take this moment so much as it just bled through into the page as a moment of true homage. And then there's, you haven't seen it yet because it comes in a later episode, but we kind of do our version of the pool scene, mm. uh, which is one of the, I mean, in that original Swedish film, it's one of the great, it's just one of the great moments of, of horror is that a pool attack. So I think, I think there are all sorts of moments and images in our show that are influenced heavily by the film, by, by moments in the book, but it was more about capturing an emotional quality and, and even what I would call vampire rules. And, and I don't even necessarily mean being invited into a home or seeing or not seeing yourself in a mirror, although that's certainly part of it. What I mean is this, the, the novel and the film took seriously the stakes of being a vampire that you actually are going to be killed by the sunlight, that you actually can't have any food but blood and the blood needs to be fresh and it needs to be human and it needs to be healthier. And the younger the victim, the better. And that it really allowed yourself to imagine carrying the weight of that blood. Like every single detail that was grounded and felt real was was a, a principle that we really embraced in our series. That's absolutely carrying over because it that's one of the things I love about the movie. That's one of the things I love about the show is it is very much character first, vampire second. Like if you're not connected to the emotions of these characters, you're not going to care what's going on in vampire land. A lot of these vampire shows that have come out in recent years or even ones that are coming out with yours, it's like they come in threes. Um, but they they kind of lose focus on the character, the emotion of it all, and they focus on some of the fun vampire stuff or they make it, you know, to, to reflect on other shows that are hip right now, or they want to use the vampire metaphor as, you know, something else, which is interesting. But ultimately, if you're not rooting and rooted in the emotions of these characters, you're going to lose it. And that's also, you know, 50% of the way you got to cast it right. You got mm -hmm. Demian here, Demian Bashir. Can you talk a little bit how intense the casting experience was when it comes to his role particularly? And was he like the first to join in where it made it like, okay, we're doing, we're doing this. It was. Yeah. And that, that's, that's exactly what happened. And, and thank you for what you said about the character and emotion. That was certainly our aspiration. And if it landed, mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I, fifth, it might even be 80% of your show. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you really, you, you spend standing. Yeah. It's, it's, and the whole cast starting with them, it's, it's, you do, you spend the better part of three years building a world and building characters and having everything exist on the page uh, to the degree that it can. But the truth is you live and die with casting. And um, we are so extraordinarily lucky starting first with Demian, who you mentioned, who to me takes a character that on the surface, kind of has this everyman quality. I mean, I think what Demian's character represents is what a parent might do for their child. And so there is a certain, you can connect to this father um, who feels like in a way be any father. But when you really start to use, again, that guiding principle of, well, what if this is real? And what if she does require people to die for her to feed? And what if he's also simultaneously trying to be an actual father for his daughter and keep hope alive and, and, and allow her some semblance of humanity. The number of actors who could potentially pull that off, it starts falling away and you're left essentially with Demi and Bashir. The, <laughs> the, the, I, and I really, and I, I, I say that it's hyperbolic, but if you actually think about what this character is asked to do in both the darker elements of, of his character and the sort of lighter elements of his 
character. I mean, you've seen the series, so you know that in the first episode, he's just kind of very fatherly, like, let me show you your new room and let me show you that. And I'm, all the sort of nice things I try to do as a father. And then later in that episode, and certainly at the beginning of the second episode, you see what else he does. And he is so emotionally available, so deep, so nuanced, so genuinely loving and caring, but also has the capacity to be terrified. And um, and I think that's that's completely unique. And and then you know Madison, who plays Eleanor, we candidly auditioned hundreds of children because it's arguably the hardest role in the yeah. whole show. She is twelve years old, but she's been twelve. She's been on this planet for twenty two years, so she's kind of simultaneously a child and an adult. She's simultaneously very vulnerable and terrifying. Is is Somebody from Showtime said you need to be scared for her and scared of her. It's a really complex character. And what Madison's doing literally at the age of 12 is astonishing. And Ian, along with Ian. Yeah, Ian's um, right. Yeah, is right off of her. It's just they're so real mm-hmm. and they're so um, honest and also incredibly talented and incredibly professional and the loveliest little humans and then Nika Noni Rhodes and Grace Gummer and Kevin Carroll and Jelko Ivanek and Nick Stahl. Like it just, there's just not a, a, a weak link. And, and as, you know, someone who started its career in the theater, like my great thrill is writing for great actors. And like, we've got the best ones in the show. So it's a lot yeah, of fun. Absolutely. I was surprised to see Grace pop up. I didn't even know she was in the show. And she constantly reminds me of her mother, which is eerie. Like she's really great. And does a great job of anchoring that whole other completely new side of things that you never really get to explore in the the films. Or I don't, I haven't read the book, but I don't think this kind of thing is explored in the book. Correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's a completely, it's a completely different storyline. And yeah, she inherited those Meryl Streep genes. And that's (laughs) the thing. Yeah, and it's a testament to Grace and to Nick that I I think anytime you have a television series and this, you know, the heart of the show is sitting with like Demian and Madison and the the storyline that Anika and Ian occupy, it's always asking a lot of that other storyline to say like, you need to be equally exciting. And we need to care as much. And, and that's it's really a tribute to Grace's work and also Nick and Jacob, who plays her brother, Peter, and, and Jocko, who plays her father, that those scenes are a, a lot of fun to write and hopefully to watch as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as I kind of alluded to earlier, vampires are definitely seeing a resurgence lately with, you know, all these very distinct and different properties. So do you spend time... When you're speaking with, you know, like a, a writer's room, are you guys going through like your favorite vampire films or why this genre endures so much? Mm, what a great question. We do spend a little time, particularly in season one, maybe a little bit more than we're we're in the um, writer's room for season three. The season has been out order that our writer's room has, so knock on wood there. But in season one, we we absolutely did. I mean, I'm, as I think you know, I wrote for Penny Dreadful, which has, which draws heavily from Dracula, mm-hmm. right? And and so I, I always try to honor the greats and be informed by the greats and to sort of know your place in the company of other vampire mythology. And and I mean, there's just so many great vampire films out there. Do you there. have a favorite? You mean aside from Let the Right One In? Because not even being, not even being a, a glib, but that really, before this project ever even came along, that, that honestly was... Uh, my favorite 
vampire film? Oh goodness, what a great question! And I absolutely should have a concrete <laughs> answer to because I mean, there's you're gonna uh, get it. You're gonna I get know. It I mean, there's so many. There's Near Dark. There's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, of course, Lost Boys is fun. Hunger. Um, mm. Why am I drawing a blank on his girl goes home on it? Girl goes alone. And I'm trying to blank. I love yep. that. Those are all good examples, man. Those are those I, are pretty good. I at the end of the day, the novel Dracula is is my is my favorite work of of vampiric fiction. Yeah, the OG. Yeah. Uh, so this also like as far as like heading up a show, this isn't your first time doing that. When you do something like this, do you roadmap where you're going to take the story, or do you just have you know, a few benchmarks in mind that could serve as endings? How do you kind of map it out? It's a little bit of both. With season one, a fair amount of that had been fleshed out in terms of, I'd sort of mapped out the season. I'd written episode one and I'd actually written episode seven before we started filming anything and and most of episode two. Um, So there was a lot that was kind of mapped out along with sort of the major story points for the season, including how it ended. Um, as we're reaching into season two, it's, it's really the sort of big story points, big ideas that, you know, we want to go into in season two and hopefully three and beyond, but there creates a little more space for discovery. And, and I think for it to frankly be informed by this extraordinary cast and, and then getting to see the work and see what feels, you know, most exciting and resonant. For sure. All great shows pivot to the, the actor's strengths for sure. I know you started as a playwright, and as far as I can tell, your first staff writer job was what you mentioned before, Penny Dreadful, right? That was That's the right. first. Yeah, yeah. I had, I had sold the television show that never ended up being made, but the first proper staff writing job was Penny Dreadful for sure. Yeah. Damn great show. Love it so much. How do you look back on that time, and what did you take away from that experience, you know, just as a writer and future showrunner? I mean, it was the most extraordinary experience because um, John Logan, who folks don't know, also started as a playwright and has won a Tony, then went on to write films like Gladiator, The Aviator, two of the James Bond movies, created this beautiful series, Penny Dreadful, which drew on characters from Dracula and Frankenstein and characters of his own invention. And he wrote the first two seasons entirely himself. So he was totally capable of, of creating the series, but I think he was interested in getting some fresh ideas and was also interested in mentoring some writers. So he hired just two writers, myself and Christy Wilson Cairns, who wrote last night. So, which I think (laughs) I spoke with her for for that as well. Fantastic. Yeah. So, so John hired the two of us. It was was our first writing uh, television writing gig for both of us. And the, not only did, did we work with John on season three, but he had us on set every single day of production for season three. So we had no idea that this was a completely abnormal experience for being two staff writers. And in fact, I think what John often asked of, of us was um, uncommon for staff writers. He'd have big, bold asks of, let's just break the season for this character and, and, and come back tomorrow with the idea. And so then Christy <laughs> and I would be Oh my God. And then we <laughs> bounce ideas off each other. And, and, and really that was, it was thrilling to work with her and for John, they're both brilliant, brilliant minds. And so there was this, like, it, it was basically being thrown into the deep end of the ocean, but by the most extraordinary and most talented and most generous mentor in John Logan, who again had us out every single day on set and basically told both of us, you know, you're going to be 
running your own shows and having your own successful careers very soon. So just watch me steal what you like and then what you don't like, that's useful to you too. And it will help crystallize how you want to run a show when it comes your time. So I, I can't emphasize what an extraordinary gift that is because I came out of my first television writing experience with more time on set and more kind of a bird's eye view to production meetings prep than most high level writers have after 10 years. I mean, it was really just uh, the most profoundly generous gift and, and it was on a show that I loved and that really um, put the, the bar pretty high. And then I was lucky subsequently to work for some showrunners like uh, Jason Kade and Jessica Goldberg, who also, you know, took an active interest in Jason presented me with a way, but yeah, that first experience, I can't. And Christie's gone on to win Golden Globes and be nominated for Oscars and create these amazing, write these beautiful, beautiful movies. And I've been fortunate enough to have these opportunities. And I think we both owe a lot to John. What a film school. Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. So does that, so as a showrunner then, do you spend as much time on set as possible or with this, are you kind of like, because I know some guys just, they're in the writer's room and they don't even go to set, but some guys need to be on set. Which, which way do you prefer it? We structure it so that almost everything is written before we start filming. Um, and, and so I'm both, I'm in the writer's room and I'm on set every day. Uh, I think I was not on set for two of the days this past season out of a hundred. And it's, and we do structure it that way because producing a, uh, an ambitious show set in the winter with a lot of night exteriors, with a lot of special effects with children is a really demanding thing. And so the more that we can kind of get ahead of the writing, um, and be strategic yeah. about how we plan and produce is, is to our advantage. So it's in a pandemic, no less. In a pandemic, no less. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was a joyful, I don't want to, um, I think I made a joke about all the challenges in a show like this. And there was a headline about how the writer talks about how hard the production was. And I don't want that. To, it was a joyful production, but it, it is, um, it's, it's ambitious in all, in all the definitions of the word. So you've spent a lot of time, you know, as a writer or a showrunner. Do you at the same time stay on top of current shows? Do you have any TV show like showrunner crushes where you're like, that one's so fucking good and I love that person and I want to meet that person, that kind of thing? I, I do a bit. I mean, I, I, um, it is true that the calendar and the, and the schedule doesn't allow a lot of binge watching, but I tell you, I watched the bear this summer and I have, I can't think of the show. I have such a crush there really into the patient right now, which the, the guys from the Americans, brilliant writers, showrunners. I think like half the industry, I have the most massive crush on Jesse Armstrong and succession. I, I know how hard it is to run and create any show. So I just have profound admiration for anybody who does it. But a show like Succession, where you're where you're like, I really don't understand how this is happening. It's yeah. thrilling. It's thrilling to watch. So those are some of the first few crushes that, that come to mind. Totally understandable. All of those are great picks. In, in your time pitching shows, have you ever had one that no one ever picked up, but you're kind of convinced like this could be great? And I just need someone to give it a shot. I'm, I've been really lucky in that I've only pitched three shows. All three were bought and two of them were made. Um, so I, I've been fortunate. You know, the first one, I every now and then have, it was a really fun show. And it's it seems um, hard to believe that that 
I have the let the right one in Penny Dreadful as they tell you. It was a it was a soap about backup dancers for like Justin Timberlake and Beyonce. <laughs> it was my first gig. Uh, and it was um, uh, so it was very different, but it was a it was a really lovely guy named Kenny Wormald who like when they remade Footloose, he was he was the Kevin Bacon character, and he had spent his life as this incredible backup dancer for Justin Timberlake, for Beyonce, for all these people, and it was sort of showing that world and it's there are times where i'm you know out in the negative 20 windchill cemeteries in new york bundled up with the vampires but i'm like that sounds nice um that seems like a fun world to play in uh no but i i i you know i still i still love that show for for kind of um what it actually allows in terms of a like a deeper kind of interrogation of Hollywood and entertainment industry in Los Angeles and all that. But, but I've been super lucky in that I felt passionately about both away and let the right one in. And I feel it's like such a privilege to actually get to make the show. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I've kept you way past when I said I would, I want to thank you again for taking the time and for our listeners, let the right one in premieres on Showtime anytime on October 7th and Showtime the channel on October 9th. Again, Andrew, it's wonderful, wonderful to speak with you. Really looking forward to seeing the rest of the season one. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for making the time, Mike. It's great to No problem. Likewise.